This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Elena Jackson Albarran about her book, Seen and Heard in Mexico, Children and Revolutionary Cultural Nationalism. The book was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2014, and Dr. Albarran is an associate professor at Miami University with a joint appointment in the History Department and Global and Intercultural Studies. Elena, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. So to begin, could you share with us how you arrived at this project? Sure. Uh, I first came to this project through not uh, the Department of History or the Discipline of History, but actually um, through my work as a master's student doing Latin American studies interdisciplinarily. Uh, and I was actually working on an art therapy project with street children in Guadalajara. So this actually came a long way from that to a historical monograph. Um, but, but back then I was interested in children's experiences, children's subjectivity, children's lives, especially children on the margins of society. Um, And I thought that the way that I wanted to engage with those questions was through through art therapy and direct interaction. Um, But the more time I spent with kids uh, that were on the street or that were in situations of precarity, the Long, the deeper my questions became about how did their circumstances evolve from historical conditions um, in terms of the way that the Mexican state was organized to deliver services to Mexican children and cultural attitudes towards children that seemed to kind of be contradictory um, in discourse and practice. Um And so these questions really persisted and led me to kind of through my coursework at the University of Arizona, keep asking questions about the relationships between children and the state in increasingly more historical framework. So that's the kind of intellectual trajectory of how I came to start asking questions about children in uh, Mexico and their relationship to claims to citizenship. Um, so then I used those questions as the subject for my dissertation research. Um, and I was 
really interested in what the archives would deliver about these questions that I had. We can talk a little bit more about archival conditions, but um, I went into the archives in Mexico without a clear set of questions or directions about where I would expect children's perspectives to be documented. And they turned up in some very unexpected places. Um, so that's the short story of how I came to be asking these questions and st- to start looking for them. Wonderful. That's a really fascinating, um, uh, I guess, point of entry into this project. So before we get into the book's big ideas and some more details about the chapters, I'd love it if you could kind of set the scene for us. So what's going on in Mexico in the early 20th century and what's revolutionary cultural nationalism? Yeah, great question. Um, So I situated this book in the decades of the 1920s and 1930s. And this is a moment in which Mexico has just come out of a decade-long civil war that uh, is known as the Mexican Revolution. um, And that really signals or promises a massive social transformation and program of bureaucrat- uh, bureaucratizing uh, the state it, with the design of, de- of democratizing the, the country. Um, it's during the 1920s and 1930s that promises of enfranchisement of a lot of social populations uh, are, begin to be delivered. Um, that legislation is put into place to guarantee increasing enfranchisement and the expansion of democracy. And historians have looked at these decades as a really rich ground to explore how indigenous populations, how rural populations, how women, um, gained claims to citizenship, whether, uh, literally through, uh, electoral, Um, access, um, but more often socially and culturally. And so my questions turned to extend to how children were included in this time period. I asked about children because a lot of the language that um, the revolutionary governments used to frame these ideas about citizenship during the 20s and 30s uh, used language that talked about the revolution as a family, the revolution as both a movement and as um, a metaphor. Uh, And so there was a lot of language that talked about citizens being constructed from scratch. And any revolutionary movement kind of uses this language and discourse um, of constructing citizens from this new uh, starting point. So that metaphorical language about children turned into actual practice the uh, massive growth of the the SEP, the Secretaría de Educación Pública, um, or the uh, the public education sector, um, had an, an uh, enormous budget allocated to the growth and expansion of schools in both urban areas, but in, as increasingly in rural areas. And so I wanted to see how children um, experienced uh, this expansion of the revolution. Um, revolutionary cultural nationalism is a kind of way of looking at how Mexico is branding itself uh, as a as a nation, both internally to create a, 
a, a culture that's universally legible to all Mexicans. Um, and then eventually for export so that Mexican culture kind of uniformly can be legible to, uh, people outside of Mexico. And so during the 1920s and 1930s, we see top-down processes of the state um, and state officials and cultural elite and intellectuals helping to kind of select from a really diverse uh, array of cultures, cultural practices, even uh, culinary traditions, um, and privileging certain ones over others as being the most quintessentially Mexican. Uh, And so in this climate of very intense nation building, um, I see lots of cultural forms that are designed for and inclusive of children in ways that we didn't see before. So I found it a really exciting period of decades to look for uh, innovative, um, areas where new people were brought into citizenship practice in increasingly uh, creative ways. So with that context in mind, can you tell us about some of the payoffs that you found by focusing on children and ideas about childhood in this era? Sure. Um, One of the most um, exciting Things was to be able to read through the archives of the SEP, um, which is that the educational archives, which are vast and um, not untapped. There were always plenty of scholars and researchers working alongside me every day that I went to those archives, um, but just incredibly uh rich archival documentary traditions that came out of this particular time period because of that state's intentional focus on children and constructing citizenship and the tendency to bureaucratize during these two decades. There's just an unprecedented amount of documentation in which adults are going in and observing children and really paying attention to their reactions and responses to um, culturally innovative programs, radio programming, curricular design, uh, hygiene initiatives, uh, literacy campaigns. And, um, and so since adults are increasingly attuned to children and their responses during this time period, uh, I find there, this to be like a really special window in which there's documentation of children's responses. So um, that big question that historians of childhood always confront is how can you ever gauge reception when you have programs that are designed for children? Um, And that really depends on the condition of your archive. And in this case, this particular archive, because of the particular historical context, really lends itself to making some uh, if not conclusions, some really well-informed um, suggestions about how children were receiving a lot of these state-designed programs for their consumption. Thank you so much. So as you've, um, you've kind of hinted to us, your book privileges the voices and perspectives of children. And I think that's um, a really uh, important part of it. But you do also talk about the contours of a child-centered world that adults were building for a new generation. So what were some of the key ideas and projects for children that were spearheaded by adults in the 1920s and 1930s? Yeah, 
one of the first things that I that I talk about and that adults were doing during um, the immediate a couple of years following the revolution, so the, I'm talking about the early 1920s, was the creation of uh, public spaces for children to uh, play and be seen, um, parks, playgrounds. Um, sections of marketplaces, all of these uh, public spaces were reconfigured to include areas that were specifically designed for children. Um, Some of those came out of social eugenics initiatives that were concerned with children's public health and uh, the perfectibility of the body. But that brought children into the public sphere and into the collective in ways that uh, previously we hadn't seen during the Porfiriato or the period of time previous to the revolution. Um, And so that's one of the ways that we began to see an increasing visibility of children. There was a big initiative to create school patios that were visible to the public. Um, There was a big initiative to create school gardens and a curriculum that was oriented towards agricultural production so that children were working out of doors. And it just brought children much more into uh, people's uh, awareness of what children were doing, how they were spending their time, how they were being raised, and how healthy they were. Um, So that's one of the initiatives that that we begin to see. Throughout the book, I look at a few uh, categories, and we can we could talk about those. But we, uh, I looked at the category of how an art curriculum was designed specifically to put children at the service of creating uh, some of the imagery of cultural nationalism, replicating some of the designs that were intended for that. For uh, like I mentioned before, legibility of uh, of a certain Mexican uh, aesthetic. Um, there were radio programs that were designed for children, but also that included children at the core of their programming. And there were political organizations that put children on stages and in newspaper columns and on radio broadcasts as political beings, either incipient political beings or actually as political voices, um, in a really kind of unprecedented turn towards being invested in what children had to say uh, in terms of the conditions that they expected from a modernizing state to deliver to them. So those are some of the areas in which we see an incredible growth in the opportunities and options for children to engage uh, with peers and with people from across generations um, in the post-revolutionary period. So let's dive into some of those areas that you've flagged for us. Um, So to start with, children's art is an important source for you. And just as a a plug for the book, if you have the physical book, um, you know, you can look at these really interesting visuals um, and the book is chock full of them. So uh, I would recommend that. So in what context were these artworks created and what do they tell us about children's ideas in everyday lives? Yeah, um, this was one of the most gratifying uh, um, research methodologies was when I began to realize that both the printing technologies in the 1920s and 30s um, were 
really lent themselves to the reproduction of images, uh, both photographic, but also uh, kind of an updated lithography uh, style of reproduction, I found that a lot of these publications were really eager to litter their uh, their pages with drawings and illustrations and increasingly were soliciting drawings and illustrations that were made by children. So as I began to pay attention to the context in which children were doing drawings and submitting them to magazines and newspapers and things, um, I began to really seek out the, the visual dimension of children's participation in visual culture, which everywhere in Mexican print culture was just burgeoning. Um, photo montage, newspapers during this time period would dedicate whole pages to photo montages. And so the average Mexican reader during this time period begins to expect and look for uh, illustrations alongside their texts that they're consuming in um, in the classroom, in the street, in newspapers. So this was a, a really fun area to research and to begin to, to try to make meaning of. Also, during this time period, um, in the early 1920s, the Mexican government, in a joint co- collaboration between the Department of Bellas Artes, or the Fine Arts Department, and the Department of Public Education, um, created a publication f- for children that was entirely about art and art design. Um, and as part of a curricular piece that was included as a mandatory component of the curriculum in public education um, throughout the the 1920s and moving into the 1930s. Um, This publication is called Pulgarcito. It's uh, Spanish for a little, uh, well, it's the comparison, it's comparative to Little Tom Thumb um, and derives a a little bit from that fairy tale uh, back the tradition, but the magazine is entirely child produced and uh, entirely child illustrated. Of course, there's an editorial board that's adults, um, but the essays included in the magazine are almost entirely written by children. And there's an instructional piece at the beginning of each magazine that talks about a, a particular strategy that's being taught. Um, The artwork that I include in uh, chapter two of this book is about a particular Mexican style of drawing and design that we can still see if we look at arts and crafts and artesanías populares in um, contemporary airport gift shops and um, art collectives throughout Mexico and abroad. But this is a style that was specifically designed in 1921 by Adolfo Best Magard, who was a cultural revolutionary nationalist himself. Um, and it was derived from motifs from the, the pre-Columbian codexes and the pre-Columbian architectural um, ruins that were newly being discovered Uh, and broadcast as an important part of um, ancient Mexican heritage. Those were modernized and distilled into seven specific motifs that provided the framework upon which these kids were supposed to be drawing um, new modern Mexican art that was derived from ancient forms. Um, And the kids that were producing these artworks did so to very... uh, 
mixed with very mixed success. Um, but there were some really earnest attempts to do so. Um, I also found that the kids in, were instructed to include certain codes that signaled their work as being Mexican. Most significantly, they were instructed to include images of the volcano Popocatépetl, known as Popo. Um, and so the privileged kids would take field trips out to these volcanoes and draw them and then include them in any drawing that they did of Mexico, whether or not that drawing was in proximity to those volcanoes or not. That was one of the ways that the children learned to create a particular aesthetic that could easily be read as Mexican. If it includes a volcano, if it includes Nopales, if it includes these ancient um, motifs um, in a modernized form, then they learned that that was a way of performing being Mexican through art. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you. I think that's a really um, great illustration, I guess we can say, of uh, how thinking about the visual can add so much to an understanding that if it was based only on the textual. So with that in mind, um, you also examine state-produced radio programs for children. Um, that are from this era. And you write that state actors had what you call uneven expectations for Mexican children from different social groups. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, sure. Um, in the chapter on radio, um, I look at it as the relationship between technology and power. And I see it as a kind of direct logical follow-up from the chapter on art, which really privileges um, more ancient and ancestral imaginations of what it means to be Mexican um, with this much more modern and technological and futuristic approach towards citizenship that also characterizes cultural nationalism in the, in, in the period following the Mexican revolution. Um, radio was a new technology introduced to Mexico in the, in the mid 1920s. Um, and access to radio and participation in radio very quickly signalized a kind of global modernity that, um, that the intellectual authors of the Mexican Revolution really wanted to include in Mexico's new nation-building profile. And so, of course, creating programming for children went hand-in-glove with their stated efforts to build a modern nation on uh, a citizenry that shared common moral um, and political values common to the revolution. So the uh, Secretary of Education had its own radio channel for uh, for kids. Um, well, that included programming for kids. It was the the channel was uh, XFX was the were the call letters. Um, and they had a show that was called Periódico Infantil or the Children's Magazine or Children's Daily. And um, this included storytelling 
that had at its core a really exciting, uh, futuristic, sometimes frightening, but um, but in, in an imposing kind of inspirational kind of way, uh, stories about a, a mechanized, industrialized future that young children listening to these radio radio programs were encouraged to um, to think about. Um, and so, on one hand, the radio programs would introduce new technologies or previously not all that readily available technologies like elevators and uh, railroads, which were a common feature at the end of the 19th century and were being reconstructed and reconfigured in the early, in the early 20th century at the service of Mexico's um, industrial uh, growth during this time period. Um, Electrification, the light bulb, um, the typewriter. And so all of these new technologies were being introduced through storytelling techniques. Um, and children were encouraged specifically inspired by these radio programs to go out into their environment and engage with these technologies and to write back to the program explaining their relationship to these technologies. So they were encouraged to go out and um, experiment with a typewriter at the local department store to the chagrin of the department store owners who suddenly had to face hordes of children coming in and playing with their typewriters. Um, and they were encouraged to ask their parents about technologies. They were encouraged to draw pictures of themselves riding the new electric trolley cars that ran through the city. Um, and then to write back in and, and, and also maybe propose their own technological futures. So it stands to reason that children, the children that were most able to participate in these um, initiatives were first of all children that had access to radio in their homes, which was a minority, although a growing minority of urban middle-class Mexican children. Um, And then also a second level of uh, that affected the kind of inclusivity of this program was that interactive component where children were encouraged to write back in and explain their relationship to these technologies. Um, In this, in the documents, I saw a little bit of pushback in the letters that did arrive at the radio program from the children that were encouraged to participate. Uh, Some of them wrote back to the program and said, I can't write a letter every week to this radio station because I don't have enough money for stamps or my little brother isn't able to do all of the things that you've asked all of us children to do. So I'm writing on his behalf, but I hope that you'll still include him in the contest because lots of these solicited participation for a drawing and they get a small prize. Um, So children were really highly motivated to participate, but they also called out the, um, the educational officials for creating structures that weren't going to naturally be inclusive of everybody um, in ways that don't uh, suggest a completely contestatory uh, stance against uh, a bureaucratized state, but they suggest a little bit of negotiation, a level of awareness of the children's relationship to these state sponsored programs and the ways that they'd like to see 
those programs work a little bit more at the service of everybody. Of course, the children don't frame it in that language, but um, we can begin to see the ways that children see themselves as being included and the ways that they can imagine an even more inclusive um, framework. There's a third level of, uh, of children that are not evenly brought into these techno- technologizing uh, initiatives from the perspective of the radio programming, which is the fact that there was a parallel program that was designed for rural children. It was called um, Antena Campesina, or uh, the Antenna of the Countryside. And, uh, and those programs were designed for rural children and were directed towards rural children. And they suggested that the rural children should maintain the integrity of the countryside. And they assigned to the rural children who were the listeners of that program um, more of the spiritual and ancestral and symbolic core of the nation and didn't ask them to be engaged in the technologies that they asked of the rural, of the urban children. And, um, and I found that that, those two sets of programming for children in urban areas and children in rural areas uh, was really indicative of the uneven approach towards children that the revolutionary nationalists assumed. Um, that really asked rural children to uphold the standard of indigeneity that was still largely relegated to uh, more of a symbolic artistic aspect of cultural nationalism and imagined the urban children as the future diplomats and bureaucrats and technocrats of a modernizing nation in a way that doesn't really upend the social divides that were emblematic before the revolution. I think that really helps us see the limits of the democratizing project of the revolution. Um, So I guess sort of to continue on to another area in which you're asking some of these questions, um, what is the Teatro Guignol and how did Mexican children respond to and participate in that educational effort? Yeah, the Teatro Guignol was another initiative um, that actually came out of a Porfirian tradition or a, a, a mid to late 19th century tradition of um, puppeteering and using puppets um, for popular entertainment. And in this case, after the revolution, the um, a small cohort of artistic elite revolutionaries saw the tradition of puppetry as being one that was rich ground for um, inclusion in the expansion of rural education. And so a cohort of puppeteers um, worked together to create an entire assortment of puppets and puppet shows that were specifically designed as curricular um, supplements to bring to the countryside ideas about health and hygiene and a new secular moral code that was ushered in by revolutionary ideology um, and to bring those in a new, exciting and innovative way to children out in the countryside through these really short little plays that were very much in the kind of Punch and Judy style of puppetry. Um, the puppet theaters were itinerant 
and they all packed up neatly into the back of a car, including their record player that had their soundtrack, all of the puppets, the frame of the stage, the little stage and the curtains. And um, it was usually a team of only two and sometimes three puppeteers that would, that would run each show. And so they'd bring those out in these itinerant circuits to places that either um, had brand new rural schools that didn't have full curriculum fleshed out um, or some of the more far flung areas that just had community centers and um, didn't quite yet have their rural schools established yet. So the puppet shows were intended to give the revolutionary ideology a head start in the countryside um, by getting the kids to kind of think for the first time about some of these new uh, the new moral and uh, material revolutionary direction. Um, this, so what the, the documents for these are all of the transcripts of all of the plays, all of the, uh, the documents back and forth between the puppet artists and the, uh, the ministry of public education, um, negotiating every detail of the budget and logistics and bringing these puppet shows out into the countryside. Um, but then also the, the best part of the documentary evidence that makes up this chapter is the fact that teachers were asked by the department of education to kind of do assessment of their, of their children's reception of these puppet shows after the puppets had packed up and gone home. And the teachers did this in two ways. They wrote up their observations of how the kids responded to the puppet shows, what they understood, what they seemed to miss. Um, and they also asked the children to draw what they had seen. And so this adds another element to the kind of visual component of this book, because I used those children's drawings um, and uh, an attempt to interpret how the children saw those puppet shows in ways that might have been other than what was intended by the puppeteers. And then the final layer of documentary evidence that really kind of brings this chapter, you know, completely together is that the Ministry of Education and the puppeteers took that, um, that feedback from teachers and from kids and used that to revise the puppet shows. So in this chapter, we see a clear example of a state program that is uh, conceptualized by adults and politicians and artists in a vacuum completely free of children, the mechanisms by which it's delivered to children, the feedback of children's response to those puppet shows, and then the response to how children received it um, in a way that it, for people writing history of childhood is really rare to have all of those documents um, that 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 show us a, a, an instance of children's feedback actually being solicited and then a change being put in place directly as a result of uh, the solicited feedback from children. Well, those must have been some very exciting documents to find in the archive. So can you tell us a little bit more how children, um, as you say, enter into civic life in new ways during this era? Um, sure. Um, Children um, during this time period, uh, previously and during during the period prior to the revolution, children were um, were really seen as belonging to either the home, the sphere of the home, or institutions that would correct or reform them. 
that could be the school as a, a very top down um, institution delivering educational tenets to open minds. Um, or commonly also um, asylums, orphanages, reformatories um, that were intended to kind of keep children out of view when they weren't conforming to society. And, and, and really they weren't seen uh, prior to the revolution as candidates for a gauged citizenship. But in the 20s and in the 30s, I see a complete reversal of that model. Um, as we saw with the puppets, children's input was actually solicited um, in, in, a, in a sustained way. So during this time period, I see children engaged um, with um, school council programs are put into place in, in lots of the public schools. And so we see children performing government on a small scale, um, learning the tenets of how government works at the level of their school, assuming responsibility of a small area of their authority, and advocating for um, things that will improve their conditions at that level. So student councils is one way that we begin to see uh, children becoming involved in civic life. Um, there was a big initiative, uh, moral initiative, reform initiative in the 1930s um, to eradicate alcoholism. And children were particularly conscripted to the service because of the moral sway that they were thought to hold over their parents. Um, and so with the support of the government, children suddenly participated in anti-alcohol campaigns in ways that took the form of everything from official propaganda where children would be photographed next to the president or officials like dumping out barrels of pulque or, uh, or aguardiente um, that their parents would otherwise drink and corrupt their futures um, to public parades where uh, kids would make banners against alcoholism um, to pamphlets that children wrote that actually, and illustrated that talked about parents, when you drink, it does this to me. And um, in, in really kind of poignant and strident fashion, bringing children into that um, intended cultural shift. Children also participated in literacy campaigns um, this was largely uh, symbolic because the levels of literacy that children were expected to deliver to their peers wasn't wasn't all that high. But it was a process of raising children's awareness of the fact that some of their peers didn't have access to some of the same resources that they had and bringing them um, into the service of filling in some of those educational gaps where the public education system hadn't quite um, had an impact. So children became sort of um, like assistants to professors and would go into their neighborhoods or to the younger levels of their school or to their siblings or even into rural uh, areas um, and begin to teach the alphabet or distribute um, manuals or read with their peers um, and they were given titles of uh, literacy officers, so it gave it sort of a little bit of gravitas to their uh, to their participation, um, if not a militant subtext to what they were doing as well. Um, so these were some of the ways that we began to see children participating, and there are 
in, in civic life. And then there are, were some, um, some more very specifically political avenues in which children were participating, particularly under the identifying category of children as proletariats. So the, um, in 1935, we see the Pan American Children's Conference brings all of the educational and health officials in the Americas to Mexico City um, to hold this um, in this conference, the seventh conference of these intellectuals, um, to talk about all kinds of issues that relate to children's health and welfare. Mexico in 1935 is really in a position to showcase what it has done for children and in the areas of education and health and, um, and does so very much during this conference. And as a parallel to that, um, there was a first com- first conference of the proletarian child was run um, intentionally to overlap with the Pan-American conference. And at that conference, children emerged as delegates and the way that it was projected it appeared that the children had come spontaneously and without the guidance of adults of course as we look at the documents we can look behind the scenes and see that they were very uh, carefully cultivated and prepared for their presentations but a lot of the optics of kids presentations in this conference that ran parallel to the international conference was one of the proletarian child is having a kind of inherent politicized spirit um, and sense of urgency about improving uh, material conditions um, for their social class. This was a phenomenon for the Pan-Americans that were in Mexico City and got a lot of international and local press um, for the kids that came as delegates and gave these very eloquent um, proclamations of their um, realities and what they had the capacity to do as children. So in these contexts, we see children being kind of manipulated by adults to appear as uh, political beings and political figures, but I don't think that their presence is completely empty of meaning, either for the kids that are participating or for all of the many children that witnessed these kids' participation through access to radio, newspaper, the magazines that reprinted their photographs and transcripts of their speeches. So I think that children's participation, even though symbolic during this time period, um, was significant in marking a shift in terms of who had access to a voice and who it was worth listening to on a political stage. So far, we've kind of been focusing mainly on the national context, um, but your last chapter in the book uh, does show that there are transnational dimensions to the story of Mexican children's cultural nationalism. Um, can you tell us more about this? Yeah, sure. I think um, a lot of times when we when we talk about cultural nationalism, it is a tendency to just look inward and look at how Mexico was engaged in, in nation building Um, for its own population and within. And I think in so doing, we kind of privilege the ways that mestizo and indigenous um, cultures, uh, languages, traditions, and aesthetics um, 
get center stage in Mexico in a, in a, in a way that really allows for Mexicans to appreciate their, um, their heritage and if not completely um, appreciate their ethnic and racial diversity, at least begin to take steps towards that. Um, but I think one of the understudied pieces of this is the way that Mexican cultural nationalism had this outward and internationalizing component. And I think that looking at a few children's organizations that emerged during this time period that we really often think of as being explicitly international in nature, we can see both how um, the Mexican Revolution had an internationalizing, a kind of global outlook, and also how Mexican um, political and cultural elite were adapting international forms to the specific confines of cultural nationalism as they were being constructed in Mexico. So I look at a couple of organizations that are really well known um, globally and, and look at how they work in Mexico. In particular, I look at the Boy Scouts and the uh, Junior Red Cross as uh, examples of really well-known global institutions um, that have as their goal kind of internationalizing and sometimes imperialist subtexts and look at how the Mexican child participants of these organizations um, have to navigate the relationship between nationalism and internationalism through their membership in these organizations. Well, this is really a a fascinating book, I have to say, and I think it's unusual and rich sources or something that you you work with with such such methodological creativity. Um, And I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Um, And I've, I've really enjoyed hearing about it from you. Um, so, you know, before we wrap up our conversation, would you give listeners just a, a sneak preview of um, your current project, which you're working on now? Yeah, what I'm working on now, actually, it it, it still um, derives from a lot of the sensibilities that I honed doing this book. It was almost an addictive process to um, to go into archives that are not constructed with the intent of documenting children's voices um, and trying to find those voices there. Um, And so it was a a pursuit that was not always rewarding, but then when you find that one folder of, you know, thick with drawings from children who've just seen a puppet show for the first time and don't know what to make of it, um, those are the days that it really pays off. So um, I did get hooked on that, on, on that research methodology. Um, and so the next project that I'm working on really follows a a similar tactic, but I, I've become interested also in the metaphorical deployment of childhood in diplomacy. So the last chapter in this book, where I look at this internationalizing feature of the cultural, um, of cultural nationalism, um, really got me thinking about how children were used and get to participate in the global sphere um, in a context in which infantilization of the Americas is a trope that had taken place um, through the evolution of Pan-Americanism 
um, from the late 19th century up until the Cold War. So taking those kinds of uh, interests at the core, uh, my next project is looking at the um, exchanges between and among children of the Americas, um, artistic and literary exchanges, and sometimes interpersonal exchanges um, that take place. And look at how those are being framed in discourses of childhood and discourses of infantilization, specifically as part of Pan-American politics prior to the Cold War. So um, I have some more art, lots more children's art, and uh, lots of conversations about um, race and indigeneity and what has commodity value um, on this stage. Um, And I also have um, some examples of what children moving across oceans and borders and how that changes the meaning of our understandings of, uh, of empire. Um, so it's in its middle stages of working on this project. Um, and it's been a lot more of a broader geographical scale. So I don't have that project of going into the ministry of education and digging through box after box um, to look at the history of a particular agency, which can be rewarding, but I have the additional challenge of trying to include all of the countries of the Americas, which is impossible, <laughs> um, into a framework of understanding how children themselves um, mitigate and nuance our understanding of uh, discourses of infantilization as diplomacy and politics in the hemisphere. Well, that sounds challenging, but also very exciting. So it's I'm sure I'm not the only, <laughs> not the only one um, excited to um, to read that when it's available. So thank you so much for your time, Elena. And uh, just to recap, we've been speaking with Elena Jackson Albarran about her book "Seen and Heard in Mexico: Children and Revolutionary Cultural Nationalism" for New Books in Latin American Studies. Thanks again, Elena. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs>